Welcome to We Really Need to Talk, a podcast about the conversations we could be having with our loved ones. These are conversations with the power to improve the way we live, the way we age, and the way we die. Talking about what we want for the end of our lives is not easy, but we've found it to be useful and powerful and suspect that others may as well. My name is Elizabeth Bergman, Associate Professor of Gerontology at Ithaca College. And I'm Lisa Richards, the Program Coordinator for the Finger Lakes Geriatric Education Center. We are co-hosting this podcast from the studio at Ithaca College, where we work together in the Gerontology Institute. We spend our days immersed in teaching, studying, and developing programs on topics many would prefer to avoid altogether, or maybe just whisper about fearfully. We have seen firsthand, time and again, the consequences of not talking about the end of life, but we've also witnessed the power of talking about it, and that is our motivation for making this podcast. Today, we're introducing you, our listeners, to our goals for this podcast. We'll share a bit about what you can expect and who we are. In the episodes to come, we'll be joined by experts who will share important information about advanced care planning, hospice, palliative care, but also about making the most of our lives right here, right now. Our guests will be sharing their stories with us, stories that will drive home the power of having these tough conversations. They'll offer knowledge and real-life experiences that will hopefully inspire you to open up a dialogue with those in your life who matter most. We're going to dive right into the deep end with a series of podcast episodes in which we explore questions like, how do we determine and figure out what really matters most to us in life and death? A lot of people say they want more time with their loved ones. If you suddenly found out you only had a year to live, what would you prioritize? And what can we do today, right now, to ensure that the end of our lives happen in accordance with our wishes, that the end is what we want, how we want it to be? Right. You could plan your memorial, write your obituary, fill out a living will, or something else. So who do we need to talk to and about what exactly, Elizabeth? We could talk to our doctors, our loved ones, our therapist, maybe members of our faith community, just to name a few. And then how do we even begin to wrap our minds around what choices there are to make? So that's why we're here to try to bring some important issues out into the open and to learn from one another. So we hope you'll subscribe and stay with us to learn why it's so important to broach these subjects. Let us help you gain the know-how that will empower you to approach these explorations. But first, we really do need to talk. So Elizabeth, I don't know about you, but I'm often asked how I ended up working in this field. Do you ever get that question? And if so, what do you say to people? I get that question all the time. It kind of happened in two stages. I got really interested in aging as a young child. I played the violin in a Suzuki violin group in elementary school. And I grew up in central Florida. And so one of the things that we did a lot of was travel around to retirement communities and perform. And so that was really where I figured out that I really liked being around people of all different ages and and older adults in particular. And It wasn't until I was almost finished with an undergraduate degree in psychology that I discovered that studying gerontology and working formally with older people was something that I could do for a career. So I did a master's degree in gerontology, and my very first semester in the master's program, I signed up randomly for a course called Death and Dying. And that class was really transformative for me. One of the things that that class prompted me to do 
was to become a volunteer for the hospice organization where I went to graduate school. When I signed up, I became what was called a patient care volunteer. So I was matched with one hospice patient at a time, and I would visit them in their home, sometimes depending on what their circumstances were. Sometimes I would run errands for them or help them get to and from doctor's appointments. Other times I would sit at the bedside and provide respite to care partners or family members who were involved and needed a break. That experience of working with people who were hospice patients at the end of their lives, that was really impactful for me. I found it incredible that people who were at potentially the most vulnerable time of their lives would be willing to open themselves up to me, a perfect stranger, and allow me to walk aside them through part of their journey. And that's really how it all began for me. I'm always so impressed with people who get involved in the stuff at a, a young age, an early age that you knew you liked working with all ages of people and were drawn to older people. I have a neighbor who does hospice work and she's a chaplain and counsels people and visits them at the bedside. And she feels like it's the honor of her life to be able to share stories with these people at the end. And it's just really amazing to me. How about you, Lisa? How do you answer the question when you get the question about how you got into this field. So my story is really different from yours because I came to this stuff really sort of late, much later in life. Like I didn't even know there was such a thing as working in this field necessarily. And I'm the kind of person I think who selfishly tends to get involved with things as they begin to affect me and my own life, right? So about five years before I came to the Gerontology Institute, my mother, my mother-in-law and my father died within three weeks of each other. And it was a hard time, you know, and one of them was a completely medicalized sort of heroic measures type of situation, the opposite of what my dad wanted. And then my mother-in-law died at home with hospice in these relatively peaceful surroundings. So after living through that, which was really pretty traumatic, I started thinking a lot more about how we treat death and dying in this country. The experience with the ICU death and battling with the doctors to honor my dad's wishes you know, that stuff's repeated all over this country. When I tell the story, people are like, they nod. Mm -hmm, I know, I know. I've been there, right? We had no support. There was one nurse who suggested that we maybe needed a social worker. She got in trouble with the doctor, so told her that they would decide when this was over, which is pretty stunning in retrospect, you know? So that's sort of a roundabout way of, of saying how I came to working in this field. I started the Gerontology Institute in 2018, about three years ago, feeling, you know, pretty burned out from stressful jobs in university marketing and communications. I spent a number of years in higher ed administration at some, you know, pretty interesting places. But as I got older, I just wasn't feeling terribly fulfilled by the work I was doing. So I, I was aware of the Gerontology Institute and had, you know, kind of poked around the website and considered the certificate program at one time. And then as fate would have it, you know, there was a job opening right when I was feeling especially ready for a change. So it was more of an administrative role than I'd really done in a long time, but I applied anyway, deciding that I'd really rather be working with the people that were doing good things than to continue what I was doing, right? So at the interview, I think I was able to express my growing interest in aging and end-of-life issues, you know, because I just felt so strongly about things. And I think that combined with the experience I had in communications and grant administration was, you know, really what, what landed me here. And then less than a year later, I moved into the grant-funded position I'm in now, organizing education and training for those working with and caring for older adults, which has been really so fulfilling for me. Nice. You know, as gerontologists, we often talk about how great it is that life is long, right? Because we get a chance to reinvent ourselves time and time again. And it's been really neat to see you in this short period of time, really reinvent yourself and grow in the role that you're in. So I'm glad yeah. you're here. You know, I found such an amazing community of people doing this work and who've been doing it for a lot longer than me, right? And these are the people who get it when you say things like, why isn't caring for the elderly and dying given as much importance as 
birthing babies and caring for babies, right? I never really thought at this stage in my life that this whole new world would open up and the people I found there would be so welcoming. And I think I've basically concluded that people who care about aging issues and older people are just good humans who care about others. So we thought it might be interesting for each of us to share a story with you, our listeners, a story that helps you get to know us a little better and gives you insight into why we are so passionate about this set of topics. So Lisa, I'm curious to hear from you a story about what brings you. Okay. So part of how I come to all this is the experience of losing my mom at a fairly young age. She died in the mid-90s, 13 years of breast cancer, and she was in her 50s. Originally, she did pretty well with her treatments and her chemo, although, you know, not an easy time, right? And then she had some cancer for years and even was deemed in remission for a while. So I was living in Boston about six hours away, and she didn't really want us to change our lives. She wanted my brother and sister and I to just keep, you know, living our lives, and, and we did. So it was pretty easy to visit. In the last couple of years of her life, her disease started spreading, right? And she didn't really want to talk about it much. She would talk about the everyday stuff like what's happening today, the nuts and bolts of, you know, what was going on with the tumor on her finger or she was going to dialysis or her next chemo. I mean, really living day to day, which makes more sense to me now, right? Also protecting us. You know, she didn't want us changing our lives or coming back home to take care of her. But she also just really didn't want to talk about it, you know, at all. And if I would get upset, she would get mad, you know, if I would cry, she'd get mad. And sometimes she would joke a little bit about, you know, leaving the house in a pine box or something, or she how the big party we were going to have after her funeral. You know, and at the time I was young and didn't really understand how much it was probably on her mind. You know, of course it was on her mind, right? It was her whole, you know, existence. So fast forward to March of 1995, my sister and I arrive at my parents' house late at night. We had just been there a few days earlier, but got a call from my dad asking us to come back. And, you know, my dad's the kind of person, he doesn't really call you and ask you to come back unless, you know, he really needs you there. So we knew that something was happening, you know. Hospice was supposedly coming in within a few days. And as usual, it was kind of too late. You know, they didn't get involved soon enough. So we pull in at 3 a.m., It's this bright, cold, clear night. It's kind of hard to forget, you know, and my father comes hustling out of the house to tell us our mother is gone. And I'm doing air quotes here because when he said gone, we knew by gone, it meant a couple things. It meant that she was, she had died and that also that her body had been removed from the house. Kind of hard to forget that night, right? I think we kind of knew on the trip what was going on, but we couldn't really quite process that a few days before when we were there was probably the last time, you know, that we were going to see her. But even knowing that and preparing ourselves in some ways, we were still, you know, pretty shattered, right? It's your mother, right? So being the mom that she was, she knew that we would be shattered and lost. So this is why she left us a note. And this note she left us was the thing that really got us through the next really kind of unthinkable hours and days. She wrote down what we needed to do, who to call, what clothes she wanted for her funeral, what equipment needed to be returned, what to do with her medications. I mean, like everything. And it was just an incredible incredibly generous and courageous act on her part, you know, and I'm still so grateful for it now. It inspired my dad many years later to kind of do a similar thing. And his was even more detailed based on, you know, what he learned from her death. But it's it's kind of hard to describe what a gift that note was. I mean, because I'm here I am still talking about it, right? 25 years later. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you use the word gift and and that truly is what it is for her to have done that. I know that you have a story to share with us too, Elizabeth. Yeah. Well, kudos to you for being brave to share a story about your mom. At some point I'll share I'll share a, a story about my own mom, but I'm but I'm not ready yet to do that. The story I'm going to share with you is about a student that I had. So, I started teaching at Ithaca College in 2008. 
And the very first semester that I taught here, I had, I taught a class called Introduction to Aging Studies. And in that class, I gave a homework assignment when we were talking about end-of-life issues. And the assignment was to go home and fill out a living will. Students did it, you know, in pencil or whatever they wanted to, and they didn't have to officially enact this document. It was just a thought exercise for them to to work through kind of what would I want at the end of life? What wouldn't I want, right? And so we did this homework assignment. Students brought it back. We had some discussion around it. They put them away. That was that. And we moved on to other subjects. Well, one of the students who was in that class a couple of months later tragically and unexpectedly passed away. And it was a, a very short illness. Nobody saw it coming. And it was it was a really difficult time. And we got through it. We moved on. And a few months later, I got a, an envelope in the mail. And it turned out to be a card from the student's parents. Mm-hmm. And the card said, basically, that... In the days after their daughter's death, they came to campus and were tasked with cleaning, you know, boxing up and cleaning out their daughter's dorm room. And so they put all of her books and notebooks and schoolwork and things into one set of boxes and all of her personal effects and clothes and all of her other things into another set of boxes. And they took them all home and they set them aside and and they did all of the other things. You know, they went about living their lives and grieving their daughter. And many months later, when they were ready to open some boxes and start looking through them, they decided they would start with her schoolwork. They would start with the books and the notebooks and things first. That felt easier to them, and I can understand that. Little did they know that when they cracked into those boxes, they would find her homework assignment, her living will that she had completed for homework in my class. And so the cards explained that they, how grateful they were to have found this living will and to have found out after the fact that all of the decisions that they found themselves having to make in those hours as, you know, deciding what was going to happen were consistent with the, with her wishes that she had written, written down in this living will, including things like whether or not to donate her organs, etc. So they just found that document to be something that was incredibly comforting to them to know that the, the things that they had done were consistent with their daughter's wishes. And that was a really powerful experience for me and something that reinforced how important, no matter what age we are, no matter where we are in this journey in life, to have thought about some of these things and to have had some of these conversations with the people that are likely to find themselves in decision-making capacities for us. Exactly. It can be so helpful. Wow, what a story. I mean, I can't imagine losing a child at that age, but also just having found that and having the realization that they did exactly what she wanted or what she would have wanted is, you know, it's a comfort to people to be able to carry out the last wishes of somebody to to do things the way they would have wanted them done. It feels like the one thing that you can do at the end. Yeah. And you know, when I'm having a rough day, sometimes I still pull, pull out that card and reread it. Helps me remember why I'm here. In this podcast series, we'll be digging deeper into the most current research being done in this area. You may be familiar with advanced care planning documents, but it turns out that having these in your medical record may not be the silver bullet it was once thought to be. 
They don't guarantee you'll get the care you want, and they also don't guarantee you won't get the care you don't want. At the end of life, situations are fluid, emotions are running high, and there will often be lots of opinions in the room. You know, it turns out the best way to achieve a reasonable outcome really boils down more to conversations that we have at our dinner tables, on walks with friends, and other everyday acts. Like that note that your mom wrote for your family, Lisa. Exactly. In other words, communicating with the people who know us best. We have a great deal of control over this. So that's where we're headed. We hope you'll continue to join us for future episodes of We Really Need to Talk. We know these are hard topics to grapple with, and we commend you for being open, for just being here listening. As we dig into the research, the facts, the tools, and the controversies, we promise you also to try our best to bring some light, some love, and some humanity into the discussions. We would love to hear your suggestions, ideas, and questions. We really want this to be a conversation. Our contact information and social media information is in the show notes as well, so please do get in touch with us. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening to We Really Need to Talk. You'll find more information and links in the show notes. We hope you'll continue to tune in as we talk with end-of-life experts and champions of tough conversations who will teach us more about the important questions and how to ask them of our loved ones and healthcare providers. We hope you'll subscribe on Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our contact info is also in the show notes. Drop us a line and let us know your thoughts, your questions, or ideas you have for future episodes, or just say hello. And remember, starting is the hardest part, but we really do need to talk.